As I said this morning, I woke up really early because what I'm about to share this morning has been very deep in my spirit all week long. It is something that I, that I can't get away from, something that is, I knew that this message was coming, but then all of a sudden it hit me that this was the week for the message. So this isn't going to be soft. This isn't going to be something that, is, that we're just going to tiptoe around certain things. Because I believe that the time has come for us to get past that. Been doing a, a series over the last few weeks that we've called Matter of Time. It's a saying that we all have that it's just a matter of time. And we say something is a matter of time. We're saying that it is something that when the time is right, it's going to happen. And we know that there are things that are ordained of God that are going to happen. Things that he set on his calendar that he said, this is going to happen. I have declared this. I have prophesied these things. And these things are going to come to pass. There is no debate on that. And just because sometimes we can get going along in life. And sometimes we think that because something hasn't happened in a while. Or it's been out there and it hasn't come about. That somehow maybe it's way down the road but I look around over the last few weeks at everything that's going on around us and I don't think we can sit here and stay and say anymore that these things are down the road and so as I begin to think about that and, and as we started this series we, we based it we're basing it on Romans 13 11 <clears throat> and Romans 13 11 says this besides this you know the time. If the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I believe the time to wake from sleep is now. First week we talked about how that it's time to shine. It's time for us to be the salt and the light that we're supposed to be. You know, what is salt? Salt is a, a preservative. Salt gives some, some flavor to some things that are flavorless. And we're the ones that are, we're supposed to preserve our society. We're supposed to be the ones that holds up the righteous standard and say, our society has gone too far. Here's the standard, and somehow you ended up way over there. Then we talked in the second week about going back to the future. And we use Habakkuk 3, 2, where, where he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. Repeat them in our day. I think it's time we quit talking about, Lord, I've heard of your fame. And get back to saying, Lord, heal our land and repeat those things today. Because I'm concerned I'm concerned about what I see going on around us. And I'm really concerned that I see a lot of these things spilling over into the church. That I see the church as a whole making compromises. I see steps being taken. But you know what? The society was never supposed to spill over into the church. The church was supposed to spill out into society. And somewhere along the line, we've lost that. Isn't it interesting that all the ones that yell and scream tolerance have become intolerance for those that stand up and say that there's a holy standard that needs to be upheld? 
The church, what, isn't it amazing that the things that the church has preached for years are now dirty words? And yet it's okay to wear t-shirts with every four-letter word you can imagine. It's okay for everything on television and online to have all kinds of foul language. But if you stand up and you call sin, sin, the tolerance goes away. Something is wrong when sin and hell are dirty words, but four-letter words are okay. Here's the truth. Our mandate comes from the God of the universe. He's the one that spoke it all into existence. We need, we're supposed to be about the business of spreading the word that Jesus loves you. Heaven is real. Jesus died on a cross to make a way for you to go there. And sin is still sin. And hell is hot. And people will go there. You know, I used to not be able to imagine the persecution of the church in this nation. But now we find ourselves in a day and a time when churches are having to put together security teams. Just recently, I don't know if you saw this, there's a lawsuit in Nevada that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled... And basically it was saying that the state had the right to shut churches down and restrict the churches while at the same time saying that the casinos and protests were okay. There is something wrong with that picture. If free speech is free speech, then it needs to be free. See, we had better start waking up and making up our minds where we stand. We need to be waking up and making up our minds if we will stand. Because it could come a point in time that we have to make some decisions. Truth must be declared. Are we willing to risk being accused of hate by standing up and saying, hey, there's an ancient holy standard that still needs to be held up and still needs to be obeyed. And just because the times have changed doesn't mean that his standards have changed. Truth must be declared. Now, I'll say this. It must be declared in love. We're never supposed to be judgmental or look down our nose or somehow think that we're somehow holier than everybody else because we, we, we should always approach these things in love, but still the truth is still the truth. We have reached the point in the time in my assessment that in that the words of Isaiah 5.20, the prophet from centuries upon centuries past, his words are right on. He says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here. Exactly what he is saying. Suddenly open sin is, is good and standing up for righteousness is bad. Kind of like the old preacher said, 
Suddenly, we reach the place that, 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 that created thinks that it can dictate morality to the creator. I'm going to say that again. Suddenly, the created thinks that we can dictate morality to the creator. The hour has come to wake from sleep. See, God's standards are timeless. Times may change, but God doesn't. Somehow, somewhere along the way, we have come up with this idea that we can come together and we can worship him and we can say, oh, holy ancient of days, get with the times. We don't get to tell him what time to get with. He gets to tell us. See, the truth is, he is the establisher of the standards. If this is his creation, God created it all. So he makes the calls. He sets the standards. We are in his universe. He is the one that looked out at the nothingness and spoke the word and suddenly there was everything. He was the one that spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. And there was light. He decides what is good and what is evil. You know, when God created the universe, if you go all the way back to Genesis and you look, what does he do? As he begins to speak, he creates something and he makes statements. He says, and he saw that it was good. And he created something else and it backs up and says, and he saw that it was good. And he recreated something else and he sits back and he said, this is really good. And if you notice something, he is also the first one that called, that used the word evil. Let's look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. My focus this morning is really pretty simple. His plan was for them to remain innocent. And he wanted them to avoid evil because, let me get this, make sure you understand this. Playing with evil leads to death, period. Then we go to chapter 3 of Genesis. And the serpent comes and begins to tempt Eve. And I want you to remember Eve's statement. In that moment, the serpent begins to talk to her about the tree. And and it's not that she didn't know God's word. Because she even tells the serpent, oh, we can't touch that. The Lord said if we touch that, we will surely die. And I want you to know, maybe you never looked at it this way, but I want you to look at what, what, what happened here. Is that she began to look at this fruit. And no, it didn't have the Surgeon General's warning on it, but it has God's word and his warning on it when he said, don't touch it. Stay away. I'm often wondered 
If, you know, and I know that we're not in that place, but I often wondered if, if we were in that spot, in that place, I would like to think if God gave me all this and said, stay away from this one thing and you can have all this forever, not have to worry about anything, I think I'd be putting every barricade around that thing I could put, you know, I, electric shock fence, something. But up until that point, God said creation was good. And he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And then he talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, the lie of the enemy is this. Is that somewhere along the line, and this is where it all started. Satan pushed the idea that it was okay for us to think that we know the difference between good and evil and judge those things for ourselves, It was never for us to judge good and evil. That is his purpose. He sets the standard. And the moment we start thinking we can judge on our own good from evil, that's when we start to mess up. Because what are we doing? We're saying that somehow we can bypass God, which is what Satan was trying to accomplish here, bypass God and begin to determine for ourselves what is good is evil. Lord God, I've got this. Because what happens is we begin to look at things and begin to see things and begin to look at the forbidden and say, but boy, it sure looks pretty. It can't be that bad. And we take the forbidden fruit for ourselves and we begin to excuse ourselves, make excuses for ourselves. See, suddenly they found themselves in place of walking with God, in place of hearing and knowing his voice to hiding from God because they knew that sin and now they now felt their shame. See, Eve decides that the fruit looks good. And the saddest part of this whole thing is that we're supposed to be smarter. We look back on ancient man and we think that somehow we've evolved. We've become greater. We've become smarter. That we've figured things out and we can do things on our own. And somewhere along the line, the sad thing is we're still making the same mistake. We're still looking at the forbidden and saying that looks pretty good. I think I'm going to try it anyway. We think that somehow we have the right to dictate right and wrong. And we even have risen to the place that we have the gall to say that this word is invalid. That things that he declared right and things that he declared wrong, that somehow we get to say, well, he didn't really mean that. Proverbs 16.25 There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. Make no mistake, God is the one that gets to make the call of what is good as evil. He set the whole universe in order. And we get to live and we get to play in his universe, but we should never forget that he sets the rules. 
He made us. He is the final authority. And our opinion doesn't mean a squat. <laughs> means absolutely nothing. That was about a dozen words that went through my mind there. You want to do your own thing? You think you've grown up? You think you're big enough to go out and do your own thing? Then here's what you do. Go create your own universe and have at it. Because when you can do that, you can set your own rules. But until you get there, he makes the rules. Here's the inconvenient truth. Sin still leads to hell. We live very dangerously when we think that because times have changed, that God's standards have changed. Sin is still sin and hell is still its destination. Preacher once said this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Make no mistake, God still despises sin. So much so that he sent his son to pay the price to give us a way out of it. And so, not, but, but he does it. He didn't do that so that we can still continue in sin. You know, I, I, so many times I hear people say, well, Jesus was so kind to the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And he was. I mean, they were going to stone her. And he pulled her aside and he said, and he, I don't know what he was writing in the dirt, but I always kind of wondered if he was writing names of people and sins that they had committed. And they were like, oh, well, <clears throat> I don't know what exactly was going on there. All I know is this, is each and every one of them began to fall away because they realized, and Jesus did look at her and he did say, I don't condemn you. But so many people want to stop there and say, look, see, Jesus loved her and Jesus forgave her. And he did. But he didn't say, I forgive you. I don't condemn you. Now go back to that lifestyle. He said, now go and sin no more. And somewhere along the line, I think we lose that. And anytime you get to talking about sin... Somebody's going to say, well, now don't get so caught up in bringing up all the Old Testament standards because we live in the age of grace. We do. We live in the age of grace. But I want to show you something that Paul wrote in his first letter to the church at Corinth. And he was dealing at this time with a church that thought that they could exercise their freedom in Christ. They thought that it was okay to play with all kinds of things and all kinds of sins and still be okay. Why don't you look at what he writes? Chapter 10, verse 6 through 10. He says, now these things took place as examples for us. Why don't you notice what he's doing here? He's referring them back to Old Testament stories of God's judgment. And he says that we might not desire evil as they did, 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sit down to eat and drink and rose to pray, pray, play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now think about that. Paul here is taking God's Old Testament judgment and using it to make, an, make a point to a modern New Testament church saying, don't get so caught up in this idea that you have freedom in Jesus that you can be like this. And he's using the judgment that God poured out on them as an example. What he's saying is, you may be the New Testament church, but he still will judge sin. It will still happen. You know, many today are believe, are deceived forgetting that God still intends his people to uphold a holy standard. We're supposed to live holy and separated lives. And we're actually supposed to do our best to avoid sin. I know that's a novel concept, but we're still supposed to do that. Yes, even in the 21st century. I mean, do we really think that somewhere along the line we change centuries and God's like, okay, well, my standards are, I'm going to back my standards up now because you're living in a different time. No. I want you to look at something. Some things that Jesus said while he walked this earth that sometimes we tend to forget. In Matthew 8, Jesus says, is talking to a group of people that somehow thought that because of their birth heritage that they were covered and they were good. And he makes this statement. He says, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Talking about those that thought. He was making the statement that, hey, just because you're descendants of Abraham doesn't mean you get a free pass. And that there will be those that aren't a part of that kingdom that will make it because they will give their lives to me. And he says this, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, where he talks about the angels coming and separating the wheat from the weeds. And he says this, and he says, all who do evil, they will be thrown them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then later on, he talks about the casting of the nets and pulling in the fish and them separating the good fish from the bad fish. And he says, and throw them into the fiery furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You guys catching a the theme here? Then in Matthew 22, Jesus talks about a wedding banquet. It says, but when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Throw him outside in the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's pretty clear here that when he's talking about this weeping and gnashing of teeth, he's talking about hell. He's talking about hell. Now, I want you to get something. My point is this. And I'm going to clean this up later because I'm going to make a pretty bold statement that, that may knock some of you back. I'm going to clean it up later, so hold on. 
But grace today in many circles is being overpreached. We'd better wake up and realize that God is holy. And when he returns, he's still going to be looking for a spotless bride wearing the right wedding clothes. The time has come to choose. And I'm at that place where I'm ready to declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's the deal. Your love makes you choose. We always go closest to what we love, right? Think about that. Too many today want the fire insurance. They want to pray a prayer. They want God to cover their sins. But then they want to spend the rest of their lives as close to that edge as they can get without tipping over. I want to do everything I want to do, but I, I kind of want to make that balance line. I want to get as close to the edge as I can without falling off and, and just somehow enjoy all the things I want to enjoy, but then still slip into heaven at the last moment. And we do. But love will make you choose. You'll be drawn to what you love the most. You can say you love Jesus, but if all your pursuits are chasing after everything else but him, then you're just fooling yourself. Yes, there are things we have to chase after. There are things that we need to provide for our families. God didn't mean for us to have this boring, bland existence on earth. He came and he blesses us. And, and some of the people that get the most joy out of this life that I know are those that have sold out to the cause of Christ because he blesses while you're here. And then we get the other blessing of eternity. But so many times we chase after everything else. What if instead of chasing after all the stuff and seeing how close to the edge we could get, what if we turn it around the other day and say, you know what, I, I don't know about you, but how many times do you see, I mean, you can watch things on, on TV, you can watch everywhere you go, and you always see in these stories people that want to play, or they hang around, they know that there's a danger, but they hang around too long, or they hear the eerie music, and they hear this noise down the hall, and instead of preparing themselves, they go to check it out. And the whole time you're screaming, don't go there! But yet we have this tendency, because we love something, to see how close we can play with it, when in reality, if we really knew the dangers, we ought to be saying, you know what? Because I love him, I'm going to get as close to him as I can and get stay as far away from that edge as I can. But the truth is, we will go where our heart leads us. And if you're pursuing the other things more than you're pursuing him, don't lie to yourself and say you love him. Don't do it. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Recently, I've gotten really back into, into 1 John and the, right there because I mean, those little tiny books, you know, towards the back that you kind of forget are there. And then you go through and you read them and you're like, wow, this is good stuff. 
1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, when he is talking about do not love the world, he's not talking about do not love the planet. I mean, because we know that in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, so God loves the world, what he's talking about is the systems and the standards of this world that we're not supposed to love. So there are things about this world that I do love. I love my family. It was exciting to, to see that, that my family, it was great to see Meredith up on the stage singing again. It was great to, to see my grandbaby here. And it was, it was so much fun. Matter of fact, I had a great moment. I went walking back there uh, between things, and, and Michelle was watching her while the worship was going on, and Michelle said, the moment you started talking, she perked up. I was like, yes! <laughs> so it's perfectly all right to love some of the things in this world, but we need to love him more than this world. Because the key is, what do you love the most? A good gauge is simply this. Are you more worried about what the world thinks of you or what he thinks of you? Because your true love will give you away. You know, years ago, I stood at an altar and watched my bride come down the aisle. And I stood there 34 years ago this November. I stood there and I declared before God that I would love her and cherish her and honor her. And I vowed that I would put her first. And I did. I'm glad to say that I have kept those promises. But you know what? Years before that, matter of fact, I added up, it's approaching 40 years ago. How's that possible? But I also stood in a baptism tank and declared that he was my Lord and Savior and I was going to live my life for him. And when I did... And I was laid down and the old man was put to rest and the new man was raised up. I have strived that whole time to never go back and to keep those promises and to keep serving him and to keep pursuing him. See, I'm not worried about seeing how close I can get to the world. I'm worried about seeing how close I can get to him because when I do, the rest of it takes care of itself. And last this morning. Like I said, I was going to clean up the grace thing in just a moment. This is, this is that time. His grace is enough. 
the part we forget is that his grace is enough to keep us from sin. See, so many times we get caught up with this idea that, that, that somehow we're just going to go along in his grace. But you know what? God didn't intend us to continue to walk in sin. He intended his grace to help keep us from sin. First John, just a few verses later in First John chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We live in a fallen world. So let me help you with grace here a little bit this morning. The term grace means unmerited favor. It's favor that we can't, there's nothing we can do to deserve it. It is beyond anything that we can provide for ourselves. Anything that God graces us with is beyond what we deserve. I thank God that he came, that Jesus came and he gave his life on the cross. I thank God that we are saved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that when, when God looks at me, he sees me clothed in his righteousness, not mine because mine is as filthy rags. And I am so thankful that when Jesus said that he saved us and he would keep us and that truly nothing could take us from his hands. That is absolutely true. But let me say this. But it doesn't say that out of our own free will, pursuing things of this world, that we can't jump out of his hands chasing after something else. We need to understand that what we pursue matters. Grace is, but grace is so much more than just cleaning up our messes so that we can be presentable to the Father. Jesus came and he died us to provide us with grace and to help us become true children of the King. Okay, I'm about to get in trouble with this one, but I'm going to say it anyway. He didn't come just to provide us wet wipes of grace. Just cleaning up our messes. Shouldn't we at some point be able to walk and sort of keep ourselves clean? Now grace does. Grace cleans us up. But the thing that we forget is grace also has this empowerment component to us to stand up and to walk in power and to walk towards the Father and start on that journey and continue on that journey. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world, in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those that have powers of discernment trained by constant practice and distinguishing good from evil. See, grace was intended to work like this. When we're saved, instantly we're declared holy because of the work of blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. 
looking towards what we will become when it's fulfilled. It is instantly declared, it is done. But how many know that the moment you prayed that prayer, the moment you committed your life to Christ, you didn't just suddenly become perfect? We're still a work in progress. And the whole idea of grace is while we're walking along, while we're stumbling, while we're falling down, that he continues to clean up our messes. He continues to care for us and help us. You know, you don't condemn a baby that is working to, learning to walk when it falls down. But when somebody reaches 35, 40 years old and they're still falling and stumbling down, some point we look at it and say, okay, there's something wrong there. They should be walking by now. They should be feeding themselves by now. We get caught up in this idea that grace is just there to clean us up, but we should be at some point, we should be striving to follow him. We can't use grace as an excuse to keep on sinning. Grace, doesn't, grace was meant to cover us when we're learning our way. But it's also there to empower us. See, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to help us to stand, to help us to walk, to help us to love him more, to help us to desire to please him and to work for the advancement of his kingdom and to empower us to do all of those things. He didn't just say, I'm going to save you and clean you up. He said, I'm going to grace you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to grace you with empowerment to stand up and walk this thing out and be men and women of God that are able to stand up in the times that we live in. It's a holy mandate of the church. We're supposed to be the ones that go around and says, Jesus loves you. Heaven is real. He died on the cross to pay for your sins so that you can go there. But don't forget, hell is real. And if you stay in your current state, that's your destination. And we've got to where we soft serve these things so much. If we're somehow something less than that, we better get on our face before a holy God. And, and you know, I was, I've been praying this week, Lord, there, what, there needs to be a place where, where we're convicted again of our sin. Where it matters to us that somehow we're tainted. That it matters to us that we serve a holy God that wants to bring us in. That he died at a very expensive cost of giving his life on the cross. He suffered and was tortured and died and laid in the tomb and rose on the third day so that we could be set free. Why do we still want to play with the things that put him on the cross? It's time we stand up and become the church again. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name How many of you would say you're a Christian? Guess whose name is in that? So if we're called by his name we're supposed to humble ourselves we're supposed to pray We're supposed to seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. And if we accomplish those things, there's a promise that's attached to that. I love love standing on the promises of God. I love calling those things out. But if you notice, most of the time when there's a promise, we tend to not look at the qualifications to meet the promise. 
And there's definitely some qualifications here. Humble ourselves. Pray. Seek his face. And here's the hard one. Turn from your wicked ways. Stop that. If we do those things, he says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We're seeing today the consequences of the effects of sin on a nation. And if we think that we can continue down the path of shaking our fists at the creator of the universe and saying, your standards don't apply today. We've outgrown that. If we think we can do that and that there won't be consequences, we're fooling ourselves. We need to get back on our face before God. We need to ask him to forgive us of our blatant sins, forgive us of our laziness, forgive us of our slumber, forgiving us of of becoming Christian consumers that we look for the place that's going to feed us the best instead of saying, Lord, where do I belong? Where can I step in? Where can I make a difference? At some point, we've got to get on our face before him and say, oh God, forgive me. Oh Lord, sin revival. Start with me. Start with my church. Start with my family. And then heal our land. I think we've got to wake up open our eyes say Lord somewhere along the line we have lost the fire and the drive to stand up and be what you called us to be he made us for more than this I for one I am done with the plague I am ready to step forth and say, Lord, show me what needs to be cleaned up here. Show me what's in the way here. Show me what, because there is nothing that I can hold on to in this world that is more important than surrendering to you. Because the things I want to see accomplished in my life, the things I want to see accomplished in my family, the things I want to see accomplished in our church, in our community, and the world can only happen if I will, if we will do what he said, if we will humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways. And to call out to him. I really think that this is something that every single one of us has some things we need to lay on the altars and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for chasing after the wrong things. 
Forgive me for putting priorities in the wrong places. Forgive me my sins. Help me to turn. And Lord, help me to fall so in love with you that all of a sudden those things aren't even a a distraction anymore. Because we will chase after what we love. For where your heart is, or where your treasure is, or your heart will be also. I'm going to ask Anita to keep playing softly. And I want to challenge everybody. I realize that some ways we're supposed to keep some distance, but I want us to take a moment. Some of you can come to the altars. Some of you can kneel where you're at. But if this spoke to you today and you agree that this was a message from the Lord, don't walk out the door and just go back to what was. Find a place where it's at your seat. If you need to turn and kneel, do that if you want to come up front. But let's take a moment and let's begin to lay our hearts before God and begin to humble ourselves. We can say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me. Lord, help me to turn. Lord, show, here's the, here's a bold prayer. Lord, show me the things that are in the way that I'm holding on to, that I'm putting more value on than you and help me to lay those things aside and pursue you. Sin revival. Start with me. Let's do that right now. Right now. Come to the front. If you want to come to the front, turn and kneel where you're at. Let's just begin to seek the Lord for a moment. Let's begin to call out to Him. Begin to lay those things down. Don't wait. I know these, this may be something that is uncomfortable for you, but you know what? I feel like the time has come to quit playing around. The time has come to quit, to quit soft-selling things. And we need to humble ourselves before Him.